Yo, that was hot. Hey, you are listening to Electric Violin Shop's podcast called Rockstar Violinist. My name is Matt Bell, and the guy slaying that violin is my friend Ross Holmes. The tune is I Wish I Could Say I Was Drinking from the band Cadillac Sky. Ross is one of the highest demand violinists around. We caught up when he was coming through North Carolina with Bruce Hornsby. Before that, Ross was a member of Mumford & Sons. He actually has a Grammy from their 2013 album, Babel, on which he did all the string arrangements and played violin and octave violin. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard Ross Holmes play. Now, we've just changed background tracks. This one is called Bacon. The band is Chess Boxer. And just in case you have been living under a rock and you didn't catch any of the Mumford & Sons stuff, Here's an incomplete list of some other artists Ross has recorded and or toured with. The Black Keys, Warren Haynes, Zach Brown Band, Ricky Skaggs, Edward Sharp of the Magnetic Zeros, Dirks Bentley, the Del McCory Band, the Dixie Chicks, Old Crow Medicine Show, Asleep at the Wheel, Big and Rich, Bela Fleck, Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush. <sighs> there are more, but this podcast is only an hour or so long. Ross can play, okay? He's also an incredibly thoughtful guy with a lot of things to say about life and music. I know you're going to enjoy this interview. Now, before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, Dodario and Codabo. Codabo is a premier manufacturer of carbon fiber bows, and Dodario is the world's most respected string manufacturer. Like many of the artists we've interviewed, Ross uses both Codabo and Dodario. And we will talk more about their companies and their products in a bit. Now, off to the interview with Ross Holmes, rock star violinist. So you were telling me that your story of starting to play is maybe a little different from some of the other people we've talked about. A lot of people we've talked to in previous episodes have been classically trained players that at some point discovered, hey, there's a whole other world outside Bach and Brahms. Right. So, I mean, how did you get your start? It started actually a couple generations back, right? It did start a couple generations back. Yeah, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and my grandfather, uh, uh, my mom's dad, was a doctor in town. And he grew up in Nebraska, and his granddad or his great-grandfather um, had done some horse trading, some wheeling and dealing on their property, uh, which was backed up to Rock Creek Station, which was where the Oregon Trail went through and also the Pony Express. And so at some point in our family history, a fiddle came into the family and was passed down, as this is a very common story. And um, my granddad, when World War II uh, happened, he decided to go into medical school and then served his time in, in Japan, and uh, I think that really in his life he wanted to be a violinist, but because of the war and his decision to go into medicine, that became his focus and his priority, but he always played, and he was infatuated with this instrument, and so living in Texas, he had moved to Texas with my grandmother and my mom, and they were in Fort Worth, and he loved the, the Bob Wills music, the Western swing music, but he also loved the very specific genre that is Texas contest-style mm -hmm. fiddling, and Back in the late 60s, early 70s, when your Terry Morris players and your Mark O'Connors and, uh, you know, the, the legends, Texas Shorty, all these cats were playing around town and, and playing these contests, my granddad would go watch and he became friends with these people. And 
my sister, who's three years younger than I am, um, decided at age five, after listening to uh, an Asleep at the Wheel record, uh, that she wanted to play that violin that you could clap your hands to. And about a year into her playing and taking lessons, um, I kind of had been watching how she was holding the instrument, her approach to playing, and I wasn't really digging it, so I sort of snatched her fiddle and said, this is how you do it. Uh, I'm, I'm a visual learner, and so I had been watching, but I hadn't really tried it. And man, next to breathing, it was the easiest thing that I had ever picked up that just came naturally. Uh, of course, with anything, it takes effort to really learn how to master something, but it was easy from the beginning. And so very soon after that, maybe a week or two later, uh, I started, borrowed a friend's three-quarter size fiddle and started taking Texas contest-style fiddle lessons. And that's how, at nine years old, the whole demise of my life began. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, man. It's, um, it's a trip. You know, growing up in Texas, um, you're expected to play the fiddle. And um, I think my, my biggest... Uh, goal as a player is to be able to speak as many musical genres fluently as possible. Not, I don't have personally have a desire to be a master of any of them, but I want to be able to play a bit of all of them because they're so intriguing and so uh, fulfilling when you, when you can play a bit of Irish music and Indian music and jazz and blues and swing and bluegrass. And um, I was very fortunate in the neighborhood I grew up in Fort Worth, there was a famous violinist conductor, his name was Kurt Springer. And his wife uh, was one of my piano teachers when I was a little boy. He knew that my sister and I had started playing the fiddle, and he knew that I had the uh, tendency to reach a little bit farther than maybe some of the other kids um, that were specifically studying fiddle, or even some of his own students that were classical violin students. And so he he uh, took me under his tutelage to sort of give me the wisdom, the knowledge, the information about classical violin playing, but so that I might apply it to the fiddle that was so intriguing to me, that particular sound, that voice. So the principles and technique of classical violin, the dexterity around the neck, learning how to sight read, basic music theory in application to uh, the songs that we were reading through the Suzuki books or through just pieces that we were selecting out of that and in for composition's sake as well. These, these bullet points really helped facilitate what I was hearing in my head, but I wasn't necessarily able to produce on the instrument because I was locked up by just horrible technique. Uh, it's one of the things that is, looking back now, it's quite endearing about the contest world. It's, it's all about the groove and the vibe of the songs that you're delivering, not so much the uh, technicality of this is how you hold it properly so that you can go from first to eighth position in one simple move. They just grab the fiddle and play, and it's so uh, emotional. It's That's what it's based on, and I... I have come to really appreciate that and love that as I've grown in my music. But as a kid, I was really seeking perfection, even though I hate that word. It's, yeah. it's so limiting. But, but very clean playing, very rich tone, having as much articulation with the bow, as well as the tone that your left hand produces. And I didn't know how to do that just starting out on fiddle. And so I was quite fortunate to find myself in this situation where I could study with this amazing violinist who... Uh, though he wasn't a fiddler, he could relate to it and sort of set me in my own way to go, here's, here's this information, do with it what you want, but here it is. Uh, it, was, it was a very uh, singular experience. And early on, it really, and my sister, it was, it's the same thing for her, she took lessons from him as well. It set us apart from a lot of the other kids because we were able to play other genres and play them like we had been studying them very convincingly. And of course, as you develop in your playing, these things 
uh, deepen and you know the the canyons get wider and it's it's very interesting man it's um I don't know I'm very thankful and very humbled by that kind of upbringing musically you know? well you're lucky to sort of a have parents who understood that yeah. hey this is you know I got this fiddler kid but let's get him some classical lessons and yeah. then also to have a classical teacher who's open minded enough because as, as we know that's not always the case yeah to have a classical teacher that's open-minded enough to say i'm just going to give you a toolbox that you can apply to something else because a lot a lot of the classical crowd as well classical only and it's you know if it's written in the last 50 years it's bunk and you know well that's also a sort of representative of the way just our uh without going down a rabbit hole in a tangent but that's just how uh edu- our education system is sort of built there's a, a midline and everybody kind of has to be catered to that it has to be delivered to that point and if you go if your tendency is to focus in, on one side of that or the other well you kind of have to stay in the midline course and really the exceptional teachers are the ones who recognize that the gifting of a student might be something totally different man you might have a student who's so into jazz but yet you're a bluegrass player so how do you facilitate that information well that's the trick isn't it right. or a classical teacher in, in this case who had students who played the fiddle. What do you do for that? Well, just help them to be able to play around the neck so that they can then discover how to fiddle better on their own. Yeah. Or compose or improvise, whatever it is. You know? And, I mean, I think that's the thrust of this whole podcast is finding people who, like you said, are, are trying – the society's trying to pull you to the middle. That's and it's, right. the, it's the few people that jump out and go, you didn't get me! <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't catch me. I'm the fiddle bread man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, that's it. You're you're very right. I mean, I think that's um, well, as we see it in society at large. You know, the the musicians or the artists or the speakers, those who uh, wind up with very public careers, are the ones who took a turn in some direction at some point to separate themselves from the pack. And that's not a competitive thing. It's not a uh, for some people. You know, the, the from the outside it might look like, well, these people are doing that just pursuing this career just because of fame or celebrity or wealth or accolades, whatever it might be. But in most cases, it's just simply the desire to be creative without the confines of being placed in a box. And that's, you know, as a teacher, if you can recognize that in a student and help them along that way, you're doing what you should be doing as a teacher. As a player, if you can absorb all the music in the surroundings that you find yourself uh, and process that and let that become a big part of your voice, um, then you're doing what you really should be doing as a player as well. And that's, man, that's, that's what we need to get back to as, as players, as musicians, as creators. And with social media and the, the ability to find so many awesome players, man, it wouldn't, if, if we didn't have Instagram, I dare say that we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. No, we wouldn't, yeah. And that's it. And it's an amazing thing how we connect on, on these social media outlets. And for me personally, I don't, it's not a competitive thing in any way. It's just, God, there are so many amazing players who do so many different things than I do. I want to be friends with them. I want to learn. I want to grow, hopefully inspire them to think of new ways to play their instruments so that everybody gets better and the whole spectrum, it's like a reverse funnel. Instead of coming down to this, this, this small pack of great players – it's exploding into everybody playing, which is the joyful noise that's created by all this music. I mean, that's, God, what an amazing time to experiment and expand the craft and the genre and the instruments. I mean, yeah. so just 
God, it just makes my heart race. Well, speaking of social media, it's through Kimberly Dre. She's the one that turned me on to you, Green Case Girl. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and and she's a pure T classical player. Sure. And uh, and wonderful said, player. Man, too. you got to find this guy, Ross Holmes. He's he's funny. He's a great player. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll look him up. So I look at man, I, I got to be friends with this guy. <laughs> so and then I looked you up, and then next thing I know, you're coming through Durham. I go, well, we got to talk, man. Yeah, man. Exactly. That's how that happens. You so often, and I. I wish that this social media outlet had been there for the duration of my career um, because I've been in, I've come to find out later I might, I might be in Seattle and another couple of fiddle player friends are in town just a block away, but because we didn't have Facebook and right. Instagram, I didn't know they were around or I didn't know to connect. And now there have been, I mean, dozens of people that I have connected with around the planet because of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and just looking and not even necessarily posting on my own, but just finding and discovering. And it really makes the world shrink. I, it's amazing how, how many people tune in from around the world to, if you have a little Instagram live video or a Facebook post, or, you know, when you look back at the analytics and you see where people are tuning in, man, it's amazing how many violinists are in the Middle East yeah. and how many of them tune in and watch or Eastern Europe or Celtic players in Ireland or Scotland, and man, it's it really is uh, just fantastic how the it's just shrinking, and everybody's sort of you're discovering everyone. Yeah, I love that so much. And it's, well, we did a live stream just an hour ago yeah. from from the electric violin shop here, and three thousand people had tuned into that at some point during the live stream. Yeah, there's a hundred and some people in the room at any given time. And, you know, we're seeing people from Eastern Europe and people from Argentina and people from uh, we're at Vietnam. Somebody said hi from Vietnam. And Nebraska. <laughs> even, even further away than that yeah, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, it's amazing, man. I, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's very inspiring. You know, I think that, um, I think there's a big difference in, uh, well, I should say, I don't think that information is necessarily knowledge. We live with these devices and we have... All this information at our fingertips, but so much of it's just fleeting. We find something that we want to know, and then we move on from it. But fortunately, with with music, it sticks to your bones a little bit deeper. It kind of gets inside you a little bit more. And when you're discovering these musicians, I didn't know anything about, uh, like, two violins. And, and what, what was the group that we were talking about yeah. earlier, man? A black violin. A black violin, yeah. yeah, exactly, man. Whoa, mind blown when I saw these dudes on Instagram. And they had been a thing for some time. Right. Totally moved. Totally different thing than I do as a player. But, man, they're up there just kicking all matter of butt. And it's fantastic. It's just the discovery is so exciting. And it really sticks with you. It process. And then you follow. And then you start learning and growing. And, man, it's just this. And, man, it's not the trickle down. It's the explode up theory. It's yeah. just fantastic. I love it so much. I'm so humbled to be a musician in this era. As chaotic as the music industry is, is... Much as the streaming services have wrecked income for writers and performers, setting that aside, the discovery of music and the accessibility of finding uh, true knowledge, not just information, but true knowledge about genres and music around the planet, it's just, it's just now. I mean, you can Yeah, do I mean, now. it used to be you had to, somebody had to turn you on to somebody, and then you yeah. had to go find their tape or their CD. Yeah. Or you had to, they had to come to your town, and you had to go see them in concert. That's right. And there's all these, hey... Have you ever heard this Mark O'Connor guy? No, no, I got, I got to go look him up. And you had to go to a record store. Hey, who's who's Mark O'Connor? Maybe they don't have sure. the record. And so now 
it's YouTube and Google and Instagram and, and all of these great players at your fingertips. Oh, man. You're absolutely right. In fact, I guess it was last fall, last August during the Olympics. I was sitting there one afternoon watching swimming or maybe it was track. I don't remember what I was watching, but I was so inspired. There's something that happened and there was a true sense of like sportsmanship. Maybe somebody, had, it was track and field. Somebody had tripped and fallen and another racer stopped to help this runner up sacrifice their own possible place in, in metal contention to help out their friend. And I was so moved by that that I just started making a list of all these fiddle players who just were off the top of my head un, in my notes on my iPhone. And I was like, I'm going to put a little Facebook post up and just acknowledge these players. And then I started putting those, started listing those people, and then maybe 15 or 20 more people popped into mind. Yeah. And that list literally went from about 50 or 60 people to now it's over 250 musicians that I, I've, I've watched their YouTube videos, I've looked at their, their Instagram accounts and Twitter and seen their posts and their playing, and it's, man, it's all singular and unique and different and inspiring, and man, I just, I want to be a champion for everybody's music, not just the fiddle players and not just the classical violinists, but we should all, it's the encouragement of one another and the collaboration. I literally, just as we did a little bit ago, just jamming on all these fiddles. I want to I want to do that every city I go to on tour with new friends and just bring it all together, man. It's yeah. so exciting. There is no better feeling as a player than that. It's I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and there's magic. It, and I find like the first time that you play with somebody different. Yeah. There's magic there. Absolutely, man. It's a whole different set of senses that are peaked. You're, you listen differently, you process differently the way you respond when you play. It's just fresh. It's a new thing. It's so exciting, man. It's, they, yeah, it needs to happen more. And it needs to be shared more, these collaborations. In fact, there was a cool thing that I remember last year, uh, the violinist Chloe Trevor and uh, the viola kid. Yeah, yeah, Drew. Drew and, and Minley. And Minley, yeah, yeah, they all got together in Singapore or someplace. And yeah. They all have big Instagram followings, and so they got together and had this amazing summit of the three instruments and what a cool outlet. Now we just need to make that like 50 people right. connected online in a space and work up, you know, a whole set of music and broadcast it live on social media. How, man, that would kick all manner of arse. We'll have to talk about it. We'll have to figure out how to make that happen. I'm dead serious, man. That would be such a, such an awesome event. What yeah. a thing. Three, like a, an extended weekend somewhere. Like an dude, Instameet thing. Dude, yeah. an Instameet. Exactly. And then at the end of the weekend, like we just stream that gig live online in some awesome theater somewhere, pack it out with people. Booyah. Booyah. Into it, man. We'll figure that out. Yeah, seriously. All right, I won't interrupt for long, but speaking of Instagram, this is from Ross's Instagram page, Ross Holmes Fiddle. Enjoy. That you play with, your career had gotten started. You, you got played. You got playing uh, Texas fiddle, yeah, and then took some classical lessons. Where where did it head from there? 
Yeah, so when I was studying classical violin, um, I, I, say, I say that very loosely, when I was <laughs> sort of developing a little bit of uh, classical knowledge, I kept, uh, I really kept going with my fiddle studies. And when I was in high school, I really got into um, jazz and I got into bluegrass and all these genres that I really hadn't spent much time with beforehand. And let's say I, did, I was never uh, seeking to be some aficionado of Charlie Parker solos or Coltrane solos. I just wanted a bit of the vocabulary. And when I graduated high school in 2002, um, I was at a recording session. I met this banjo player, this ridiculous player, Matt Menifee. And he, um, he gave my number to a guy in Fort Worth named Brian Simpson, who was also a songwriter in Nashville and really did building his songwriting career and he was wanting to put a band together as sort of an outlet for his music as well as sort of creating in his mind I guess maybe a version of the Strength in Numbers band the Telluride Sessions Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush and Edgar and Bela and Mark O'Connor and um, going a different route maybe that sort of meets Newgrass Revival anyway so that was in the fall of 2002 October of 2002 and that's when Cadillac Sky was born and that band toured until uh, 2010, and in the course of that time, we really established ourselves as sort of um, the forefront of progressive acoustic music. I don't want to say bluegrass necessarily because that's limiting, but uh, Punch Brothers and Nickel Creek and the infamous String Dusters, these bands that really pushed the boundaries of where our generation of acoustic players was headed beyond the previous generation, the Newgrass Revival guys. Um, and towards the end of uh, the life of Cadillac Sky, we met... Um, the British, up-and-coming British band at the time, Mumford & Sons, who had been really inspired by Cadillac Sky and Old Crow Medicine Show and mm -hmm. these sort of out-there acoustic groups. And we did some touring together, and uh, at the end of 2010, Ca Cadillac Sky ended, and <clears throat> I just shifted right over into Mumford Land and was with them uh, for several years and was the string arranger and fiddle player on their second album, Babel, which was honored to win Grammy Album of the Year, and, and um, man, that band took me to about 40 countries and the biggest festivals and the smallest clubs and everything between. It was an amazing experience. But that led into, uh, in my mind, the things that I wanted to really pursue as a player. As much as I love the gig, and those guys are family to me, um, it wasn't a, an improviser's gig. It wasn't a, hey, get up there and just blow your horn, you know, it was, you know, it was a pop gig, and sure. there's no slight to the environment, it's just, here's a song and this is how it goes, and you play that way each time, but I had been so diligent about focusing on improvisation and speaking beyond that, I was really seeking outlets beyond that to get back into that type of playing, because that was my true love, and, and I got this random call from this Virginia phone number, and I answered it, and it was Bruce Hornsby, and he called, and he was like, hey man, I want you to be in my band, and okay, cool, well, send me some songs. And he sent me a list of about 150 tunes and said, I don't write set lists. <laughs> so it was uh, <laughs> jumping off into the deep end when you don't know how to swim, really. And um, I've been with Bruce since uh, kind of overlapping with Mumford & Sons, so from about 2013, uh, the end of 2013, 2014, um, with, with Mumford going into Hornsby, and then that led to some awesome touring around the planet with Allman Brothers guitarist and government mule founder Warren Haynes. And man, it's just such a deep list of cats that I've been so fortunate to play with. I I've truly have been so honored to be 
involved with such a diverse range of musicians. Um, I can sit here and name them, but it feels a bit braggy. I just, as long as you keep creating, as long as you keep pursuing uh, music and information, music knowledge beyond what you know, you're going to find yourself in situations where you're making music with unexpected people. Yeah. Truly. I was on this Christmas tour um, this past year, 2016, with some friends of mine from Ireland, Keith and Kristen Getty. They're modern hymn writers. And <laughs> found myself as a, as a guest soloist and arranger and writer for this tour um, <laughs> on stage in Carnegie Hall with none other than the, one of the most preeminent jazz bass players, John Patitucci, yeah. improvising in, to a sold-out crowd with a 250-voice choir behind us, improvising these instrumental vignettes off the cuff, just making eye contact with this hero of mine. Since I was a kid, a teenager, discovering Chick Corea's acoustic band, hearing John Patitucci and Dave Weckl and these guys just play this amazing music, to stand on that stage with that dude... If you'd asked me 5, 10, 15 years ago if that would be a possibility, I would have said, no way. There's no way. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. But that's irrelevant. You just find yourself in situations where you're... And you just step up and do you. Right. Do your voice. Speak your voice. And that's the most sincere and honest thing. And that's what takes you to new places when you're just you. That was a bit of a tangent. But, man, I just... I, I have to pinch myself at times because... I mean, here we are at the electric violin shop. I'm here jamming with you. We had never met, and now we're filming videos and jamming out and playing all these violins and trying out all these pedals that I know nothing about, but it's so exciting, man. It just blows my mind, and you have all this knowledge, and you're sharing it, and it's just incredible, man. It's, that's what, that is what music is. It's not about the dollars. It's not about the record sales. That's for the business execs that want to have the yacht and drive the Maserati. I could care less about that, man. I just want to make music with my friends and music that lasts and stands the test of time. That's it. I mean, a Maserati would be pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but you could listen to nice music in your Maserati. Yeah, exactly. I think I'd rather have a Viome. Yeah. <laughs> So fantastic. Um, so what is, uh, what's next? I mean, we know you're on the Bruce Hornsby tour now for, for how long? Yeah, so uh, we've got touring Bruce Hornsby and the Noisemakers through the end of July this year, beginning of August. Um, I've got some touring coming up with Ryan Bingham, the country artist. Um, the big thing right now, I've, I've, at, the, at the end of 2016, it was just a bit of a crazy year. I mean, besides all the political happenings, I mean, the Grim Reaper, once he sort oh of, once he harvested David Bowie, he just hung around and started chopping all the legends down, man, and it psyched me out a bit. And I realized that going into 2017 with the changes in the world and the changes in everybody's lives, I just, I personally needed a reset. And so I sat around Christmas time and just made a list of all these projects that I've had swirling in my head for years but haven't had the time to pursue because I've been making music with everybody else and not doing my own thing. And I started going through this list of projects and refining them and the ideas. And, and the big thing right now is just working on a, a solo record, uh, which I'm incredibly excited about. The whole uh, purpose of the record is to not do a, another bluegrass fiddle album or do a jazz violin album. Those have been done by the best players on the planet, and I don't pretend to be that. Um, but what I'm working on is an album of a bunch of my compositions, uh, and everything behind it is programmed. Mm. Um, 
not EDM style, but manipulation of sounds. And the producer I'm working with in Nashville, Carl Miner, is this. A, he's just a beautiful, beautiful musician and player. We kind of grew up in the same sort of musical environment, but I sort of have gone the way of composer artist, and he's gone the way of producer, session cat, engineer, knows all this stuff. So it's a very interesting team uh, that we find ourselves collaborating together, and uh, and that's my big focus right now. I've got six weeks off after I finish this little tour, which will wrap up here uh, this coming weekend, um, middle of April. Uh, I've got six weeks off until the end of May before I head back out with Bruce. And, man, it's just buckling down in the studio and really focusing on the exploration of these tunes and these sounds. And I've got that project happening and a couple books that I'm working on and uh, a type of music series that will kind of go around the world and showcase some other players. And there's there's so much happening. I, I find that the way to stay relevant and current uh, is to keep your fingers in as many projects as possible, playing with a diverse range of musicians, whether it's in recording sessions or touring live or guesting back home in Nashville where I live, um, it, as well as all the other sort of fringe projects. It just keeps you fresh. It keeps you moving forward instead of sort of becoming jaded to the system when you've got the gig that you've held for 20 years and you don't want to let go of it, but you kind of been over the music for 19 years and it's just a paycheck and uh, I never want to find myself in that situation I'll go do something else uh, pick bananas or something I don't know <laughs> I mean, you do like bananas I, yeah, bananas are great they get that potassium <laughs> Here's another brief musical interruption. That was Ross destroying another solo with Cadillac Sky. This tune is called Insomniac Blues for Matthew. Again, we want to thank Dadario and Cotovo for making this podcast possible. Like I mentioned before, Ross uses both products, and he's going to talk about them in just a minute. He's not getting paid to say anything. This is all from the heart. I think you can tell by now that he's not a shill for anyone. He's just going to tell it how it is. So enjoy a little more Cadillac Sky, and then we'll get back to the interview. been making actually speaking of that been making a lot of funny videos on on instagram what was what was sort of the and if you guys haven't seen his instagram feed you need to get to ross holmes fiddle and and there's just the the wit and the dry humor is yeah so so what was the inspiration for that (laughs) i think the inspiration for it was i just to sort of come out of my social media shell and hiding it all started with I literally one morning I woke up and I didn't have coffee. We didn't. We ran out of coffee at home and I was super bummed out. And I had left my fiddle out overnight. It was sitting there and I never do that. I'm really beautiful, expensive violin at home and I just was a fool for leaving out. So my fiddle was sitting there and I was kind of half awake and I did this just stupid little video explaining the the need for a chin rest <laughs> and that sort of 
snowballed into other videos. I've actually shot a bunch more that I haven't posted. I have been a bit gun shy because, you know, for me it's about really at the end of the day it's not about developing the comedy scene, it's about the music. But at the same time they they're they're hand in hand part and partial and I think that um I don't know, when I'm when I do my own thing on stage and really connecting with the crowd, I love telling stories. I've had some pretty ridiculous stories, uh, things that have happened and created these stories in my life. And, and comedy and wit, um, it, it really brings people together uh, when something's so formal and so serious that you know, just that rod is just shoved so far up your back that you're just uncomfortable. Uh, it really takes away from a lot of the beauty of the music, which is what you're really trying to share. Right. And so just the, the humor side of it, man, if I can make somebody smile or laugh, whether that's through a song or through a story or through some dumb little Instagram video, then it's a win. And that's really, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I love making these funny videos. <laughs> I want to make them with everybody. Anybody who ever wants to do a stupid fiddle video where we break something or play a silly song or discuss a silly topic relating to fiddle, bring it on. Come, let's hang, let's shoot something. I'm down. I'm down for it. It's it's awesome. <laughs> but it's, oddly enough, it's what's really kind of helped propel a bit of the social media thing. And I have no idea what I'm doing, man. I'm not. I'm having admittedly have no knowledge about how to build a following on Instagram or what to do. I just I'm posting stuff that I find interesting and silly myself, and so hopefully other people do as well. Maybe yeah. it'll get boring at some point. I'll just do finger painting like Bob Ross, but <laughs> Bob Ross Holmes. <laughs> well, you know, music is supposed to be fun. Yeah, and, and we take art art so seriously because you have to it's yeah. a thing it's hours and hours and hours a day and you know we're just working all these it's a lot of work it is anybody who thinks that you know i'm just getting into music because i just you know i want rock and roll all night and sleep all day <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know even the guys in kiss work really hard oh of course and, and, man. and it, it's hard work now it's fun but sometimes we can forget about the because of the work we can forget about the fact it's supposed to be fun yes and you go all the way back to to Haydn. Who was writing these, like the surprise symphony is this joke symphony. I don't know if you've heard it, but I haven't. So Haydn was the court composer for a king. Yeah. And the, the king had a tendency to fall asleep during some of the slow movements. <laughs> so he writes this symphony and, it, and it's and it just goes on just like this thing. So it just—it's got this full orchestra just blast out of nowhere, and Haydn would at, at the premiere. He turns around, he's conducting, and he's watching, and the king is fast asleep, and it, everybody's staring directly at him, and they hit that note, and everybody looks away, and the king sits up, and, <laughs> and of course you can't laugh at the king. This is back when he can execute you, you know. So yeah, exactly. but, but I mean, it goes all the way back to, to Haydn and some of these joke things that he would do. That. I mean, it's not a new thing where we think that music is funny and fun. You know, sure. The Beatles, a yellow submarine, and just some of this crazy oh, stuff. Um, so, you know, I love it. And and two-set violin yep. is doing a really great thing in Australia. I, I don't know if you follow them or not. I have, yeah. Well, I, don't, I, I think I follow them. I know I've totally seen their posts. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So, you know, I love the fact that people are, are sort of marrying high-level music with, with comedy. And it's, you know, it's, it's light, it's fun. We've got to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit. Well, that's it. You know, particularly with classical violin playing, classical music in general, there's this idea that it's, it's very highbrow and stiff and, you know, it's so much of the focus on perfection and, and you just can't, you know, let your guard down and be a bit silly, which is ridiculous. And on the opposite end... You know, we imagine classical players should wear tuxedos and fiddle players should wear overalls. Um, but it's really bridging the gap between both worlds. And that's, as you just said, man, it's, it's through that comedy, that sort of unbridled goofiness that, uh, hey, you know, everybody's got just basic human nature. The, just the banter that we find ourselves having every single day with people. Set the music aside and focus on that for a minute. That's just funny conversation you can find yourself in conversation with somebody at the mcdonald's drive-thru or at a coffee shop or a bookstore or on a call when you're trying to get you know comcast to stop being so horrible and switch into at&t so we find ourselves in these situations so to be able to capture that and put it uh, in a little short snippet video form on social media it's it's funny, man, and when you get to bring people in, I've had a few people come into some of the videos, or I've had friends shoot the videos, they don't really know what they're doing, but it's quite funny because they'll follow somebody walking by and say, like, no, 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 I'm over here, but that's awesome because that's what you did, and it's right. a bit of just this sort of Christopher Guest, Spinal Tap-esque <laughs> type thing, so I love it. So talk a little bit about gear, since you know I think most of our yeah. listeners are, are musicians. Yeah, let's talk about gear. What do you play in, and what do you run through? And- exactly. Yeah. So I have two different setups when I'm touring, um, like the Christmas uh, tour that I was on last fall. Big symphony halls, big special venues like that. I take my main violin, uh, which is uh, an August Bernadelle uh, ASP Bernadelle from 1832, and it's. Just a monster violin. It's one of those dream instruments that I don't really know how it happened. It just did. And a friend of mine found it. And the stars aligned, and I caught lightning in a bottle. I'm very thankful to have this instrument. Um, and I also play a couple old French bows. Um, my main stick is a Joseph Lefleur, Lefleur from the 1820s. And that combination of that particular bond, the ASP and the Lefleur, is just it's super dreamy. Um, but I don't tour that everywhere because I'm not going to put a pickup on it. I'll use a DPA microphone or some type of lavalier that clips behind the bridge. Sure. Um, and that's solely acoustic. But when I'm touring with most bands, 85% of the time, 80% of the time, uh, I use my other main violin is, is another French violin from 1829. Um, it's, it was cool. It's a cool story about that instrument. It was, uh, owned by Aubrey Haney, a big session player in Nashville, and he used it big sessions and records and people have heard the instrument at various times and didn't realize it and Aubrey being a big inspiration to me when I was in my early 20s I was like man he's always got these cool fiddles and loves showing them to people and that particular instrument was like man I can only hope to have an instrument like that someday and he did me a super solid and it's like man whatever you can pay me for this fiddle it's yours and scraped together what I thought was a fair amount and he was happy and I was over the moon and wow. really took my playing to the next level and um, so I, I have an LR Bags um, pick up on that those guys have been friends for some time and, and it's cool I, I my luthier in Nashville Brian Christensen at the violin shop um, uh, it's really 
wise when it comes to um, my setup and knowing exactly what I need based on the parameters of my playing. And he has specifically picked out bridges for my LR bags pickup that I've then sent to them, and they've installed okay. their pickups into these bridges. Um, I can't even really tell you the, what properties are different. They might have like a tighter grain, so it's a denser bridge, so that it resonates a little differently. And the piezo, I'm not exactly sure, but he's picked out these specific bridges. And man, the setup is really simple. I use uh, the bags pickup to an LR bags venue DI, mm-hmm. and I use the same uh, venue DI on my mandolin as well. Um, I love it. It's e- the ease of setup uh, and the consistency of tone is is great. There's no arguing with bags and, and the fact that it's a solid product that you can uh, rely on consistently. I know that if I'm somewhere in a city and my bridge snaps in two, odds are I can go to a music shop and there's going to be a bags pickup that somebody can install, which for consistency of product is awesome. It's not the boutique kind of customized one-off by some electronic engineer who really like knows his sonic data and information so deeply that he can create this space age pickup i mean i that's not not the vibe but that to say man having come to the electric violin shop and played all these different electric violins and talking about the different types of pickup systems and instrument systems and midi and quarter inch and wireless and all this my head is just reeling from all this just amazing gear that's around. Uh, even the Kotobos that we were talking about, man, I, I've traveled with Kotobos for years because traveling internationally, so many woods used in fine violins, whether it's Pernambuco or, or you know, tortoiseshell or black pearl, these, these uh, ingredients, if you will, uh, they get confiscated. Man, I've had friends who have had guitars confiscated because they've used... Indian rosewood, which isn't in danger, but it's still rosewood, and the TSA people and customs agents don't know the difference, and they take it anyway. This happened to Ricky Skaggs. He had a prototype acoustic Paul Reed Smith guitar, maybe it was seven or eight years ago, and he flew to Scotland or Ireland or someplace where they, musicians just walked through the border. It's right. like not a deal. And they took up his guitar, and it took him several months to get it back. And it, it wasn't Brazilian rosewood. It was like Indian rosewood. So I try to be very careful when I'm traveling internationally to not take uh, these instruments and bows that are very, very special. So I'll absolutely travel with Coda bows. Um, and I, again, it's one of those products. It's like it's so consistent. You know how it's going to play. You know how to uh, adjust your playing to accommodate the bow and how the bow accommodates you as a right. player. Uh, and it's great, man. I had never played that the new Marquee bow until the day, and I was blown away, man. That's one of the best composite sticks I've played. It's really fantastic. Um, so traveling, that's always a thing. And two, when you're going to different environments, you might one evening play an amphitheater to 5,000 people and then a four or five-night residency at the Blue Note in New York and then find yourself in a big theater somewhere in Cleveland and then you're back out at a music festival in California. And so your instruments take a beating. Your right. bows take a beating. you got to rehear your bow, but, man, it's amazing how travel really affects Pernambuco and just the way the stick might feel stiff or too spongy and with the composite bows the carbon fiber bows it's just consistent the entire time and that is man it's really important for those of us traveling Um, you know it's one thing if you're a big classical violinist and you can stop into any shop 
any of the finest shops and they know who you are and they know how to tweak your you know, $3 million Amati violin so that it works for that nice Beethoven performance, you know, um, or rehair your bow with whatever. Unicorn hair. Unicorn yeah. hair, man, exactly. Um, but for those of us that are normal human beings, <laughs> you know, the consistency is a really big deal. And, and um, so products like bags, products like Cotabo, uh, I've endorsed Diodario strings to Dario. I've always said it incorrectly, Dario, 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 Dario. I'm going to get that right. I, I learned that from from watching a two set live <laughs> yeah, stream. Yeah, they man. were uh, they were doing their their busking thing, trying to make money to do their world tour. Yeah, and they were doing the uh, I don't know if you saw this, but they were doing the Kickstarter thing while they were live busking for like four solid days or sleeping on the sidewalk. Wow. And Dario offered to buy them a hotel room. Wow. And and they're Australian. Yeah. And, and and I think that they're not even native Australian. I think they're Asian. Yeah. And so it's funny because, like, we expect in America, like, people who have learned to speak English as a second language yeah. from an Asian beginning yeah. to have a certain accent. But these guys have learned Australian from an Asian beginning. So it's, it's a very <laughs> different awesome. accent. But so they're, they're talking, they're trying to pronounce Didario. And the Didario rep that was on, that was, you know, FaceTiming with them or whatever, said, duh, D-U-H, D-A-H-R. <laughs> she, so she like phonetically wrote it out. And I'm like, I'm so glad I saw that. Because I, I was calling Diodario too. I, I didn't know. Oh, man. Yeah. It's been so conditioned since I was literally a kid. Diodario. Like D'Angelico. Yeah. It, so it makes sense, but and I'm, then with I'm, a Texas accent on top of that, Dario, mine, Dario. I'm trying to get to Dario. So, but yeah, I've I've used their strings for years now, and have been a, a big fan of of really all their sets for different purposes. I've used Helicores for years, or maybe it's pronounced Helicore. Yeah. Uh, Zyx. We don't know. We don't. We don't know. <laughs> Zyx strings, of course, I've used uh, for travel. I think they're great. And now with the new Kaplan sets, the Vivo and the Amo, I've used both sets a ton uh, and have been so happy with those strings. And now they've got that new Octave set, which has come out, uh, which is fantastic because the Tomastic uh, set, Octave set, they're great, but they're so expensive, man. When you're dropping, you know, 120, 140 bucks for a set of strings, um, I actually, man, I bought a set one time and put on the put on the the g-string literally true story started to tighten it and the ball broke on the end just popped off just a totally bad string new 40 bucks and i thankfully saved like my old string and the shop sent it in and they sent a replacement back you know it was no big deal but they were hard to come by and they were really expensive and and the the new helicore octave set sounds fantastic you can find them they're great, and I use octave fiddle extensively on tour and in recording sessions as a way to avoid having to take a viola and a cello to play parts, especially when you're stacking things and you know they're going to get buried a bit. You can cheat and use that octave fiddle. So it really is a, a very important tool in my arsenal. And, yeah, so between bags and Cotabo and Daddario, I mean, solid brands that you know you can find that are reliable. It's so important when you're traveling, you're touring, playing in different environments and different bands and sounds and uh, yeah i mean uh, th- that's to give a plug but it's also not to give a plug that's just the truth about my setup yeah and uh yeah 
I mean, you talked about the boutique pickups, and it and it's really sort of like when you get a pickup and you've had that or that that whole system, you've had that system for a while. A lot of people that we talk to, they don't understand. Well, I don't just plug into this thing and play the way I play. It's an interactive thing, right? You interact yeah. with the instrument, and you have to learn. It's like having a relationship with somebody. Yeah. You have to learn what makes them tick. And, and it's the same with your instrument and your setup. I have to learn how to make this thing do what I want it to do. That's exactly right. And then once you've learned how to control that pickup, and you've learned how to control those strings, you've learned how to control I I know that if I do this, it's going to make the instrument respond this way then you've sort of learned how to play on that. And when you go to something else, those tricks may not work the same way. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I, I, I love the idea that you said it's, it's almost like, it's almost like hitting Walmart. It's, you know, I know that I can get a bags pickup yes. in Berlin and I know I can get a bags pickup in Tokyo. I know I can get one in Rio. I can get one wherever. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I know that I know how to make that pickup work for me. That's exactly right. And there are other pickups as we were talking about earlier, you know, I've got a, friend in Nashville who is a deep sea fisherman in Alaska and has been very successful at that but on the side his wife plays the fiddle and he wasn't happy with the tone she was getting when she was plugged in so he invented a pickup that mounts internally in the bass bar and has patented this deal and it's been sort of copied by a couple other companies and they've done a good job of it but the original pickups, this tag violin um, man they sound unbelievably great but you have to retrofit them into your existing instruments which means taking the top off and cutting into the bass bar or replacing the bass bar, which changes the instrument completely. Right. Um, and not many people are going are to do that. So that means that my, my friend Troy Gibson, who started this line of instruments, he basically created a line of instruments so that he could use these pickups in them. Right. And they're great. He's not doing this anymore now, but I still have a couple of them. Men... They sound in, incredible live. The way the fiddle sounds acoustically is how it sounds plugged in. So if you have a dark, rich, chocolatey fiddle sound, that's what you're going to get in the pickup. If you have a brighter uh, Johannes Kuiper's violin you know, from The Hague and it's a very specific kind of nasal sound, that's what it's going to sound like if you were to put one of those pickups in. Um, and so it's, it's very accurate, but, again, it's the process of retrofitting these into instruments. And that's not it's not convenient when you're traveling and you need something that right. you can either clip on or just have as a bridge pickup or attach in some way. Um, so consistency of product, and that's just it. You know, what you're used to playing with your electric violin set up in the pedals is foreign land for me. Although it's a bow in four strings or five strings, it's it's... I mean, an airplane has, you know, a tail and two wings. Right. Speaking, you know, very, very big brushstrokes. But there's a big difference in flying a Piper Cub than an F-18 Super Hornet. And the information and the way you go about handling each of these machines, um, it's, it's totally different. And so for me, what I'm used to doing is completely different than what you're used to doing. And it's easy for both of us, but when switching, it's... Uh, well, it's easier for you to because you do play a lot of acoustic violin. But for me to go to your realm of electric violin, man, I have to stop and think about even the way I articulate with the bow. How much pressure do I apply? Do I actually change bows and use a different bow so that I can get a little bit more meat out of these bottom strings? If it's a five or six or seven string instrument, how do I visually look at the neck when it's got frets because it's engaging or do I just rely on my hands and sort of feel the frets that are there? It's a different way of processing music and it's it's so incredibly engaging 
uh, it's terrifying, but it's exciting because it's new territory. That's that's one of the uh, to me that is singularly the, the most important and most exciting thing about music is that you can never master it. There is always something new to learn. That literally, until you're an old person on your deathbed, you can continue to learn. That I was love, a Pablo Casals quote, exactly, right? Yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm making progress. I feel like I'm getting better. Yeah, somebody had asked him at, at 90, "Why do you still practice so much?" He's like, I feel like I'm making progress. Yeah, man, and that's it's so true. If you ever get to the point, anybody gets to the point where they say, "Yeah, I've kind of done that. I'm moving on. And I know the, all there is." Well, a, you're just totally a liar, yeah. <laughs> and b, you have not even scratched the surface. And that's what travel has done for me, man. Having been to so many places around the planet and seeing and collaborating with these musicians in so many genres, uh, it is eye-opening and just heart moving to hear these musicians pour out their soul souls into music that you have never heard in your life didn't I didn't even know it existed and they're giving me a part of their existence through this and vice versa I want to give that back honestly and uh, it is so man it's just it is amazing and the fact that we can discover all this now right online it's just it's daunting. There's so much that we have to do. Uh, I mean, you know, both of us being dads and having kids, man, you just, you, you look at your kids and you're like, I want to expose them to so much stuff so that they will be smarter and wiser and more fruitful with their gifting and their careers than, than we are. And, and then you stop and you kind of look at it and you're like, damn, there's a lot of information out there yeah. process to just pass on to them. It's got to right. go through us first. And it's just, man... That is one of those things you think about as a dad. Is like, I want my kid to know so much stuff. Yeah. And then I realize that he's my kid. Yeah. So the chances of him listening. <laughs> That's about exactly, the same. exactly yeah. right. Dad is, I'm going to go play G.I. Jones. <laughs> yeah. It's like every parent thinks, you know, my kid's going to be a pro ball player. And you go, no, he's not. You know how I know? He's your kid. He's your you kid. You can barely walk across the room. <laughs> Oh my goodness, man. Genetics, man. Genetics. Mental, he was onto something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, a little more music here from Ross's Instagram account. He posts this stuff all the time, and he's forever putting up live videos from the stage, too, so go follow him for real. We wanted to let you know about a Daddario giveaway just for Rockstar Violinist listeners. They've already given away three sets of octave strings to our listeners. Now you can register to win some Zyx strings. The link is in the description of the podcast. Now go register and good luck. Well, you talked earlier when we were talking in the car before about how being a dad has made you look at music and, and art and life differently. I mean, what's what are some of the changes that have been so big for you? We, when you're a young musician and you're establishing yourself as a thing in the music industry, you know, there's a, there's a bit of that, um, I'm a kick button, take names thing that exists. And I don't know when I, when my wife and I got married and a few years later had our first kid, our daughter, Maddie, who's nine now, um, nine and a half, she'll probably tell you. Yeah. Uh, man, it was a massive shift in the way I've, I viewed music from the simple fact that um, 
it all went from being about the perfection and the how awesome can I be as a player to I love my kid and I'm going to play music for my kid. And I want to be impactful for other children. I want to be impactful for other people. And it takes time to reset how you look at uh, your vocation. And with music, it's a very odd existence because we're making our hobby our work, and we're making our work our hobby. It's constant. It's all day long. There's always a melody running through my mind, or I'm always on my arm. That'll be my next tattoo, or four strings on my arm so I can practice. And um, music always persists in some way. Uh, But being a parent, I realize that, and just looking into the eyes of my kids, I have three kids, um, no more. <laughs> Don't ever hug me. Um, you know, it, I love them so much. I, I love my family so much, and I'm so thankful that I get to make my hobby my work. I want to be responsible with that, and it's not about how perfectly can I play this piece. It's how much soul can I put into this piece, how much heart and uh, dedicated love can I put into this music that I'm making so that my kids realize that when I'm away touring, it's not that dad's gone. It's He's doing something that's impacting people's emotions, their souls, and hopefully lifting that uh, those people to a different place. Uh, and I want my kids to see that. Uh, any of us who are musicians, we want our kids to see that. And it doesn't matter the genre, whether it's honky-tonk or Cajun or, you know, Yanni. Uh, we want it. We want to be emotive. We want to be able to express those feelings that we have deep in us, so that our children might see that, and so that other children might see that. Because music won't continue to grow and flourish unless all the people in the next generation, you know, pick up the mantle and the torch and carry it forward and, and do new things with it and experiment with it. And and you know, the world we live in, that we live in such trying times that. The thing that people fall back to are the arts, to mm-hmm. music, things that uh, sort of purify and cleanse our souls. And that's, uh, it's a great responsibility, though people look at us musicians as, oh man, they're the, the has-beens that couldn't go get a real job. Well, that's a pretty naive statement because when the, when the going gets tough and people fall on hard times, what people turn to, statistically, factually speaking, people turn to movies they go to gigs they need to escape the grim reality that they might find themselves in so they turn to things that bring them joy and that's music that those are the arts and there so there is a great responsibility to make sure that what we're playing though it's fun and we're jamming we're having a great time there is there's this level of responsibility to to be pure with that doesn't matter matter if it's heavy metal or classical flute uh it's, it's important that that dedication is there from everybody, whether you're an amateur or a professional, because everybody can do music. And there's, I man, even that, just saying that out loud, amateurs versus professionals, some of the best musicians I know, some of the best players on the planet aren't professional musicians. They're am- they have regular jobs. They might be a doctor or a pilot or whatever, but they're so ridiculously gifted, they just chose not to make that their career. And then I have friends that are wildly successful musicians that are kind of just average and they know it and they'll tell you they just caught lightning in a bottle and found success and have stuck with it and that's cool too you know just be responsible with it on both sides and 
do something that's going to be impactful. Yeah, that's really to to get off the soapbox. That's that's really it, man. Doing doing something that whether it's music or whether it's community activism or or charity work, philanthropy. You know, I, I want my kids to see that this isn't just you know dad running off to go play a bunch of hot licks on stage. It's this is really soul impacting. You know, so that's. It's a bit of it. Y'all can wipe your tears now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about, and I think, you know, a lot of the education comes from meeting people in different situations than you're in. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I think that makes us a lot less judgmental as people, you know, the more travel you, I think you find the more traveled people are, yeah. the more open-minded and I think more thoughtful and just maybe deeper they are. Yeah, sure. So you've gotten to take your family on a on a bunch of trips. Just give me maybe an idea of one of the best trips that you've gotten to take your family on some a, a cool place. Oh yeah, man. I, I think it was it was the summer of 2013. I had uh, I was basically doing all this touring with Mumford and Sons in Europe for the duration of the summer of two and a half three months, and um, I just up and brought the family to Europe. And Maddie at the time was six. Five and a half, six, and Weston, our middle one, was two and a half, three. And man, the, although they don't remember much of the trip, they remember moments of the trip. And when they look back at pictures, it jogs mm-hmm. thoughts and memories. Uh, but the fact that they experienced that culture, one of the things that we've really cultivated in our families, we live in Nashville, Tennessee, and have lived there since 2010, but bought our home a couple years ago. And we've been really intentional about leaving the door open for musicians coming through town. Musicians and friends and people who need a place to stay at this sort of uh, sort of a halfway house for <laughs> wayward people and uh, our kids have been exposed to loads of folks whether it's through travel or people staying at the house and natural colorful individuals from all walks of life and man it's really uh, it was a far different upbringing than what my wife had and what I had with my sister growing up and. Um, because Sarah and I have both traveled so much around the planet, we, we want our kids to grow up in an environment where they're exposed to um, many different cultures of people, ethnicities, and people who play different styles of music. You know, you think Nashville, you think country music, you think bluegrass music. Nashville is going through this beautiful renaissance period right now where rock and roll is just so prevalent in the city and more and more you find this sort of R&B scene that kind of comes up from Atlanta and the blues kind of world that kind of comes over from Memphis and St. Louis and Kansas City and classical players of renown come through and play the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center and so all this music is happening in, in the city and when you can expose your kids to that and expose them even beyond just going to gigs but hey these are friends they're going to come over for dinner and and this person's from Ghana, and this person's from Japan, and this person is from Canada. <laughs> you know, they really get exposed to uh, a wide variety. And it's amazing to see how their little hearts and their minds are being shaped, not because of anything we've said, but the situations that we've exposed them to. It's amazing, man. And, and music is such a great catalyst for this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's precious. Yeah, that's it. I mean... It, I wish that I'd had that experience growing up. As yeah, a kid. me too. Yeah, I mean, dang, it <laughs> sounds awesome. 
<laughs> so, you know, we're, we're starting to run out of time. We don't have a time limit because it's a podcast. We, don't have, you know, we do whatever the heck we want to do. But, um, yeah, at some point we need to maybe go eat and play some more. But, um, yeah, of course. Because that's, you know, there's <laughs> life to eat and play. Um, that's what they say. That's what vacation is, just eating in places you've never been before. Yeah, exactly. But um, may, maybe give us one of, the, uh, one of your cool stories that you tell on stage or something to get us out of here. Man, so one of the cool stories, I'll tell you two cool stories. One of them, uh, this is really quite funny, uh, involves my daughter. So in, in 2012, Mumford & Sons, we had a two-night residency at Red Rocks in Colorado to film this DVD. And, um, of course, Marcus Mumford, the lead singer, his wife uh, is the actress Carrie Mulligan. And just a beautiful woman. And But... In this, in the scene, uh, the music scene there, the, the hang scene, there are always actors and actresses coming in and out to hang. So it was no big deal to see so and so and so and so out at a gig, and it was cool to, you know, meet some folks that you see on the silver screen. But uh, at Red Rocks, um, <laughs> Johnny Depp came out to hang, and <coughs> excuse me, we were hang back in the green room, and and Sarah walks in with uh, with Natty and Weston and. And Johnny has some kids of his own and loves little kids. And so Maddie was sitting on the couch next to him, and they just started chatting. They just had this awesome conversation, and she's a bit of a talkative little little girl. And, and um, so we had to go on stage and start this gig, play this gig. And I look over part of the way through the show, and, and she's sitting on Johnny Depp's lap, and they're just, just yapping it up, talking. And it's awesome. I'm like, oh, that's super cool. You know, I hope she remembers this. And so... The next day or a couple of days later, we get on the bus to leave Red Rocks and head out to the Aspen Jazz Festival. We're in the back of the bus, and you know, in these big tour buses, there's a lounge at the front and a lounge in the back, and there's a big TV. And so I turn on the TV just to see if something's on, and flip the channel, and it's Pirates of the Caribbean. And Maddie's back there with me, and her eyes get as big as pie plates, and she looks at me and says, "Quote." Dad, I knew he was a pirate. <laughs> it was awesome because the way he looked on the in the movie was how he kind of looked in real life, and here he was, this tatted up, beaded man with crazy hair and on an awesome outfit and hat that she's in his lap yapping to, and then all of a sudden he's on a pirate ship fending off ghost pirates, and that was, I don't know, that's that's one that, that I awesome. file. It's a funny one, but. I think one of the most interesting stories that's happened to me, man, is that um, being a Texan, there's no greater honor uh, than – there's no greater place of importance, I should say, than the Alamo in Texas. Yeah. Uh, and not only in Texas, but in the course of American history, there are few places – Gettysburg is one, mm -hmm. and uh, the White House, um, Independence Hall in Philly, the Alamo, these places that really defined Americanness. Um, so I was invited several years back to perform at a, an annual ceremony that's held at the Alamo that honors the defenders who fought and died, and, and the Mexican soldiers as well, not just the Texans. And so I went to this event thinking, oh, maybe I'd play something like Amazing Grace or Ashokan Farewell, but I got to San Antonio and I was like, I need to play something that has not been done a billion times. And I had no idea what I was going to write or how it was going to come to me, and about an hour before the ceremony, I got my fiddle out of the case and literally it was a gift it must have been a gift from God because I didn't even work on the composition I just played the piece it was the only time in my life that I got my fiddle out and I just played a new composition one time 
And that was it. And I was like, this is what I'm going to play in this ceremony. And as I was walking across the street from the Crockett Hotel, I saw one of the many plaques on the grounds there at the Alamo. And it was a quote from one of the letters from the commander of the Alamo, William Bear Travis. And one of the lines was, if we uh, should die, if we should perish, if we should die, we fall a sacrifice at the shrine of liberty in Texas. to paraphrase, but that, that little snippet, We Fall a Sacrifice, just jumped out at me, and uh, that was what I was going to call the piece, and so I performed in this ceremony, and after uh, the evening was done, I, I asked if I could go back in the Alamo and record this song, and I thought maybe I'd probably never play it again. Uh, just p- turn on my iPhone, make a little recording, and have it just posterity. Yeah. So I sent it to a few of the people who had been at the event that evening, and it made its way, this little iPhone recording made its way um, to Phil Collins. Mm. And Phil has this very, very deep spiritual connection to the Alamo and has spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on a collection of artifacts from the Battle of the Alamo and the War of Texas Independence. And in 2014, the state... Um, he donated this collection of artifacts to the state and they made him an honorary Texan and so they had this gala in his honor and um, so people got in touch and said hey, you're invited to come play this piece that you've composed at the Alamo and all of a sudden it hit me oh, you know what? Davy Crockett was a fiddle player his supposed instrument is at a museum just down the street from the Alamo the Woody Museum in San Antonio I should play that fiddle at the Alamo so the museum was gracious to allow me use of this instrument to go play 30, 45 minute set wow. at the Alamo, This starting with this piece that I had written, Davy Crockett's fiddle at the Alamo, my compositions, my sister who has pursued music and has become very successful, she's the lead female singer and fiddle player for Western Swing Band, Asleep at the Wheel, the very band that got her started playing the fiddle. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a beautiful story. But she got up and played with me, Brother Bear, Sister Bear style, Davy Crockett's fiddle at the Alamo for Phil Collins and all the big Texas names that you can think of. And it was a very surreal moment. Then after we got done playing, Phil jumped out of his seat and came over, and we spent 20 minutes 25 minutes just talking about music. He was a fan of Mumford and & Sons and, and had looked up who I was and what I'd done in my career. It was very kind and gracious. And we talked about the Alamo and talked about music. And I don't know, it was one of those moments that was um, just people connecting on a very odd and different yeah. level, different subject. But it stands alone as a... Um, th- there are very, very, very few people who have played their compositions on Davy, Davy Crockett's Fiddle at the Alamo. Yeah, very very few. <laughs> one <laughs> and and one is that and so so it's uh, I I count it as a great life honor. I will always count that as a great life honor to have had that experience. Uh, and that's to say, I've got a, a couple projects kind of in the works with the Alamo and with that instrument. So we'll see what happens over the next awesome. couple of years. But um, that's a cool story. Very cool. Very story. cool story from the road. Yeah. Love that. I also got drunk one night with Prince Harry, which was really fun too, but uh, for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The British family's not going to let you tell that one. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. Man. Well, hey, man, it's been a great time. This Thank has you been so much. incredible. Thank you for letting me get up here and just flap my gums. For yeah. 
probably far too long. It's it's all, it's all good. It'll all go on the internet and people oh, listen man. to it, and then you'll forever, be famous forever. forever and ever. And if too, if somebody out there looks up to see who I am on Google, there is a, a wild story floating around that I got kicked out of a particular lounge club in Atlanta. If you find this online, you'll know it when you see it. It's absolutely not true. Uh, I'll leave it at that. What happened to the Claremont Lounge did not happen at the Claremont Lounge. Okay. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was Vegas for a second. <laughs> yeah, I know, but Atlanta. And this what happens in Atlanta didn't stay in Atlanta. It, apparently it didn't stay well, in Atlanta. what didn't happen in Atlanta? Yeah, what didn't happen? God almighty, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we got to go look it up. <laughs> Thanks so much, dude. What a yeah, treat, man. man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it so much. Man. Yeah. My friend Ross Holmes, amazing player, amazing person. Check him out on social media, Facebook and Instagram under Ross Holmes Fiddle and his website, rossholmes.net. Also check out his bands, Chess Boxer, Cadillac Sky, Mumford & Sons, and Bruce Hornsby, all on iTunes. Thank you guys so much for listening. Check out electricviolinshop.com, who hosts this podcast, as well as daddario.com, and Kodobo.com, our sponsors. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.